welcome to Arts Chat. Uh, I am John Robinette, and I'm joined here by Amanda Robinson. And we are with our keynote speaker from the ARCS Conference 2019, Joan Baldwin. Uh, we just listened to her speak about leadership and gender equity in museums, themes that are common in her books and her blog. Joan is a former museum director, um, is the curator of special collections at the Hotchkiss School. She's the principal writer for the Leadership Matters blog, which has 55,000 views in 2018. Her work has also appeared in the museum blog, book, History News, and Museum Magazine, Museum Punks, and The Guardian. She's a co-founder of the Gender Equity in Museums movement and teaches in the John Hopkins University Museum Studies program. With Ann Ackerson, she is the co-author of Leadership Matters in 2013 and Women in the Museum, Lessons from the Field in 2017. She and Ackerson published a revision of Leadership Matters in August 2019. So now we'll uh, elaborate on some of the themes that she's presented in in both her, her, her talk that she just had now at the conference and also what she presents in her blog. Well, Joan, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you. Thank I'm going to start so with a big overarching question. Uh-oh. <laughs> what has inspired you to take on the theme of gender bias and leadership in the first place? Um, I think, as I mentioned in the um, in the keynote, when we started work on Leadership Matters, we interviewed a lot of people and we talked to a lot of people. And actually, the first group of people we talked to were women. Mm-hmm. And we, we did not expect what happened to happen, but they really spilled their guts, and <laughs> it was rough. Um, mm-hmm. And this was this was what almost seven years ago, eight years ago, Um, and it was uncomfortable, and and it just seemed like it it needed addressing, Mm -hmm. Um, but we'd already committed to the Leadership Matters book, and we were not going to change horses in midstream, so we just tabled it until until we were ready, and then we persuaded a different publisher to take us on, and and when we were finished with that book, to be honest, it was Anne who said, this is not enough. We have to do something else. And so um, with a group of women that we had met through the book, we started Gender Equity in Museums Movement. Interesting. So that raises an interesting point. What have you found that the implications of addressing these issues to be in your work? And how are these themes starting to fit in the context of what we're facing today? Um, well, I, I mean, all the sort of batty badness that we thought was there is there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would like to think that there isn't sexual harassment, but as soon as we started to interview women, we started to hear just horrible conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of us and the other women involved were quite uncomfortable because we're not counselors, we're not HR people, and there's there is a world of hurt going on out there and a lot of people with no place to go. And um, a couple of sessions we did at AAM, the line for questions was all the way down the chairs and around. And pe- people were saying, telling us stories where you'd go, you know what happened to you is against the law. Mm-hmm. And, and women would say, well, I kind of knew that, but I was told not to, I was told not to report it. 
was told not to say anything. Mm. So I, I think sort of bringing it out in the open is the most that we can do as individuals. We're not lawyers, we're not counselors, we're not HR people. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm curious, there maybe you can say there's been some positive that have come out of it as well. People have gotten things off their chest. They maybe found an opportunity to find some help for themselves as well. Well, to be totally honest, without meaning to, the book, the women's book, came out just at the same moment as Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. So the two paths sort of converged in a way that we never could have anticipated, mm-hmm. and. Um, and as a result, I think it's made our work a lot easier. It, that's kind of a creepy thing to say, but at least mm-hmm. at least it's happening out in the world as well. Mm-hmm. And there's less resistance, I think. It doesn't mean the problem is solved, but yeah, clearly, clearly. My thought on this, of course, the the goal is to create a context where people are not being harassed. That. Um, that these incidents don't happen, but that is not going to happen overnight, and we know that there are significant obstacles to achieving that. What are some things that we can do? I mean, in your in your presentation, you talked a lot about humanizing the culture and having these interactions with people that are very one-on-one, and they're, it's purely about connecting as a human, and I think that is so important. What are some ways where we can just be there. And I say this, you know, recognizing that I'm a white guy. I am, I'm not going to say the problem, but I am not someone that is um, recognized as the solution. Um, <laughs> but so I want to, uh, you know, someone, as someone who just needs to be there for people and, and make themselves, I mean, I think you, you made a great point where you have to speak out. Um, that is fundamentally my role as well as everybody else, but what are some other ways that people can help alleviate the pain that that is being suppressed? Well, I think you have to, I I started down this road a little bit in the talk, but I think you have to recognize your, um, who you are to begin with, and I've had a, I've had a rough road on this and been taken to task, um, particularly around is, issues of race. I mean, I'm an older, white, privileged woman, um, and gosh, it was rough. It was really rough because I, I felt literally like I was blind. Like mm-hmm. I could not figure out what the heck these women were saying to me. Mm-hmm. and. It's taken me a long time, and now I, I am literally flipping stuff around in my head and saying, but what if, what if, and trying to put myself in someone else's shoes, which I have to say, I was one of those people who's like, well, you don't know anything about me, and I was brought up in this way, and I'm a good person, <laughs> which is so not the point. <laughs> um, and I, I am not sure how to do that, but I do think this idea of having a value statement, even if it's only for your little section of a vast museum, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think stating right out, mm-hmm. this is this is who we are and this is how we behave on this campus. I don't care what, well, I care, but I'm not the conscience of the rest of your life. But if you're 
open about that and everyone is in agreement that in this workplace we behave humanely and this is what we say is humane mm -hmm. then it's much easier for people to make their observation their obligation and to stand up yeah um, I think it's terrible when we throw young frontline staff literally in front of the public I mean the stories that we heard at ASLH in August where they're, um, they're being, uh, particularly uh, staff at historic sites in the South, and visitors will say, well, you know, you, you would be my slave. Oh my and God. they have to cope with that. And they're 23 years old. And they don't, they know in theory the organization has their back, but they don't know that they can test that. I mean, at that moment, do you say, I'm done with this tour, but I have to excuse myself now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff, and I think that value statement, even if it's only for, for the frontline staff, let's say, mm -hmm. um, says to them, we, the organization, have your back. Mm -hmm. um, for your fellow employees and God forbid, you know, your colleagues, but also for the public and the contractors mm -hmm. and that weirdo trustee and, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. It's a lot to, it's a lot to <laughs> digest and think about, um, but all good things. Uh, so turning the tides just a little bit. Yes. We're curious if simply expanding museums and diversifying our displays is enough to really tackle the need to change our institutional culture. Do we need to talk about individual collegiality? How do we engage with one another in a field that is competitive, elitist, and mostly superficially homogeneous? I think your statistics earlier really <laughs> represented that clearly. Um, wow, so a lot in that question. Um, I just had a woman stop me on the way up here and, and she said, <laughs> isn't funny. But she said she has three sort of middle management people who are women who are like the mean girls. And they've been sent to training and nothing has worked and they're now on the second director. What, what kind of training? Sort of hum try to humanize them yeah. to, to make them better leaders but nothing has worked. Mm -hmm. and. They gossip incessantly, and they're they're just mean, and they're and and it obviously has a trickle down effect to all the people that they supervise. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, well, "What do we do?" Um, and my response, literally on the fly, because rushing up here, was, "Well, you have to." At the, I think there are some people that just don't hear and don't think it applies to them, even when they do hear. Um, and at some point, someone in authority, possibly the director, is going to have to sit down with them and say, kind of, this is where the dog died. Yeah. You know, uh, your behavior is affecting all these people. And this is, again, kind of what I was trying to get at this morning, that we have to find a way to have these conversations that are human and that ask you to be a better person without saying, John, you're really a jerk. You know, I think if you start with that, people's right. ha hackles just go up and they're like, Right, everyone's you know, defensive from that moment yeah, on. Yeah, they're not mm -hmm. listening. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that's easy. I think, I think it's hard and I don't think most museum leaders 
come to the corner office with that kind of preparation. That's yeah. Like, they kind of run from that. It's right. like, please don't tell me. You handle it. Yeah, confrontation is hard, but I think also when you're a leader, it's part of your job, whether you like it or not, and you need to find a way to do it effectively. It's surprising. It doesn't sound like those women have any consequences for their behaviors. Not yet, except to get off work to go to this training. Yeah. Which in itself is somewhat amazing that the museum didn't just come down harder. They actually offered that, and... I mean, I assume it sounds like they probably paid for it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I can't think of that that would be the normal situation. Um, but it's, it's, it's amazing that they even had that step. But, I mean, it seems like part of leadership training is also understanding how to reach out to people so that you can get a response and to, and to make changes and not make somebody defensive because once you make somebody defensive you're not going to see the results you're you you've kind of humiliated somebody and so how do you how do you it's understanding how to reach out to a person in a way that's going to elicit a, a positive response right yeah i mean i think leaders need to be hugely empathetic and they need to be people 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 right you know that that really matters we we have a consultant working with us now and she's setting everybody's hair on fire because we're in a search and she keeps saying I don't think we need a person who has ever led a library and archives or special collections before and people are just you know they're just <laughs> twitching and she 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 has a very sort of global look at these things and she says I want someone who is going to be the best advocate for this program who is going to be the best people person who is going to um, galvanize this group and and make them the creative agile sort of individuals that that we know that they could be if they weren't squabbling so um, and I think there's a lot to that because I think we often hire for what's on the paper and just because you have a doctorate in right. art history and medieval tapestries does not make you a great leader. Necessarily, doesn't mean you can't be. Right. Um, that makes me think of something else. I'd written down a question during your talk as well, uh, looking towards opportunities for you to, to learn to be a leader. What type of programs do we as a field offer to develop that type of skill, and, and you mentioned it already, the Getty Institute, and then as well as AASLH, their program. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious because, uh, you know, do we, f- I feel like the Getty program specifically, it's very curator focused. I feel like it brings in a lot of people that are already at a certain rank and position. Mm-hmm. And I think we can agree that, at least in the art museum world, a lot of the leadership that develops starts at a curatorial role and goes up. Mm-hmm. And to have someone that doesn't have that experience go up, I think, would put a lot of people on edge. Um, and I wonder how that program, you know, what can they do to maybe change that a little bit? Maybe diversify, flatten out a little bit, like you had said, that um, type of leadership training and development. Well, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I do think that the field as a whole is starting to wake up to this. I think many of the graduate programs. Um, at least have one course, like Johns Hopkins has one course, <laughs> um, in some sort of leadership. And and if you put that together with, I think they teach a course in ethics and 
Um, there are a couple of others that you could link together where you could kind of create your own little leadership track. Um, I think a lot of times students who are in graduate school and or emerging professionals got into this because of the things mm -hmm. and the content, whether it's history things or art things or photo. Mm -hmm. um, and they are, some of the students I talked to were like, <laughs> I never want to be a director. And that's fine, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be a leader. And the more you, you rise up in your particular content area, the more you're going to supervise people and not things. Yes. And, and that's heartbreaking for some people, but they're, ne they're not intentional enough to hear it. And the lure of money and power, not that there's always a ton, but um, makes them accept positions that perhaps they're not really ready to inside. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's something, I mean, at least, I'm going to say at least two out of the 18 people that I interviewed for um, Leadership Matters were offered leadership training as part of their accepting their position. And in both cases, they had CEOs or, or executive directors who were not from the field. They were from business, and that would be standard. Yes. that we're bringing you in, you're a little <laughs> bit off-center, um, we, we like everything about you, but we want you to be coached in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And in both these institutions, there was the money and the will to make this happen. And so even one of these people, even after um, she finished with a year of intensive coaching, she still was, was checking in with her person. Um, so it can be done, but again, it has to be the leadership of the museum has to say. And, and I think, and, and I probably should have said this in one of the questions, I, I think it's too bad, too, that boards don't often take a chance on someone and say, look, you're the full package, but you just don't have the experience, but we're going we're gonna to send you to, on this course. You're going to take the Chamber of Commerce leadership course. Mm -hmm. and, and and we're going to work right alongside you to support you in all these other areas. But otherwise, we really, you know, we love you. We want you. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a lot of boards are willing to do that for that EV position. I have a theory about this, and I would love to get your opinion on it. And I feel like in, in using, you know, what you said in terms of business, like m business is where a lot of the leadership material and training mm -hmm. kind of comes from, mm -hmm. and and you can probably argue that that's where ultimately the boards are formed in, in, in that context. But because most of our institutions do not operate as businesses, meaning of course they have to have a bottom line, they have to meet budgets, etc. But they aren't. Their goal is not to make money. Um, I feel like it. It's sort of, and this is not supposed to be an argument for being pro-business like a capitalist mm -hmm. institution however I feel like that element of competition drives people to recruit to develop employees in a, in a different way and if you look at say the military which is a super hierarchical mm -hmm. institution every time you um, ascend the ranks you are trained mm -hmm. 
and that is the the idea and which is why it's such a valuable um training program if if you want to see it that way um so i feel like that is something that maybe we could you know try and I don't know that we're gonna we're not gonna change how museums are run, but maybe we can take those lessons away and say, hey, look, you know, we we came to the registrar career not because there is a registrar degree, so we are all mentored through this, and we have to rely on ourselves as our training, and 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 we also have to see you know, look outside of the field in order to um, get the skills that we need in order to continue to climb the ladder because there isn't a ladder for us that is made uh, but that's just that's that's something that I've been marinating on uh, for for a while but I, I would love to hear how you would approach that theory well one of the myths that I didn't talk about this morning is we are the source of our own best ideas uh -huh. which is so bad mm -hmm. <laughs> because we're not and the more you live kind of in that little museum bubble yeah. um, where you can convince yourself that being a nonprofit means you don't have to make money, it, mm -hmm. it's just crazy time. Yeah. Um, and that's not what being a nonprofit is. You're welcome to make money. <laughs> yeah. um, and I hate when I hear particularly little, smaller, boards of trustees say, well, we're a nonprofit, so, you know, we can't really pay that much for, and I think you hit on something that business realizes that, that its staff is the heart of its, whatever it is it's making, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure museums are there yet. Mm -hmm. um, for museums, it's the collection, and we're, we're the <coughs> net, so we're right. like super special. Um, or, or we're an art museum and that's more special than the local history museum or something. Um, and I'm not sure that's the point. It's really what you do with your collection um, and how you meet the goals of the mission. And all of that depends on the staff. Yeah. Um, and, and your investment in them. And they, they're important. They're, not to mix metaphors here, but they are pushing the ball down the field mm -hmm. for you. And so it's really important that they be engaged, that they be well-trained, that they um, be respectful of one another, That because all of that makes that well-oiled machine work well. And every time they churn and you lose someone, that's money. Right. It's money lost and time lost. Right. Exactly. You, you, uh, having an employee costs you money, and you, it, it, is, it is an investment, and uh, yeah, how can you afford to lose that person is another question you should be asking yourself mm -hmm. as a leader, and as a, someone who aspires to be a leader, it's how do you make, make yourself invaluable? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well, yeah, and, it, and for the organization, too, it's not just that it costs money to advertise and go through the hiring process. Um, and, and have an open spot, but every time someone leaves, they leave with that sort of institutional knowledge in their heads. Yeah. And you never quite recover it, so it's like this horrible game of telephone where what you started with is, um, sometimes it's better, but it's never the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you right. touch on some interesting points. I, I want, often wonder, my, personally, my whole family works in the corporate world, so being someone that doesn't, um, 
you know, whenever I went into my negotiating process for like a job or what have you, you know, my parents and my family was like, okay, this is what you got to do. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and my response is, there's no way they're going to offer me more money. It's a museum. They have no money. Or I can't ask for that. Or surely I can't ask for that. And But, you know, when your family tells you, you got to try anyway, I'm like, all right, let me practice in front of a mirror, which is exactly what I did. And sure enough, wasn't I surprised when they came back with, oh, yeah, well, we could do that. Or sure, we could do this. Or this is where our limit is. I would have never, would have never guessed. And I, I don't know if it's because they have experience in a corporate world where that is expected and that is part of the culture and that's not the culture in this type of field. But it boggles my mind. I have a colleague who said, oh, I would have just, you know, I was just happy they offered me the job. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> sure, I mean, yes, but no, 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 no. You need to think about all these things. And this individual has, you know, he comes from an immigrant background. I wouldn't have guessed, you know, being a man that he would have had that perspective, but... I don't know if it's because he's not from this country and it's a different world for him. He has a way different approach to it. But in my mind, from what I knew, why would you not do all that for yourself? Even though I was, you know, questioning what I would have done anyway. And I feel like there's a session brewing up with all this talk, especially in a lot of the questions that you received after your, um, your keynote speech. You know, how can we teach each other these things? How can we learn about being better advocates for ourselves so when the time comes, and we have to ask for those things. You know, we do it with confidence. We do it with, you know, knowing our value. It's all interesting. I think also what you said, that you can negotiate with other, um, other aspects of the job, not just money, mm -hmm. is, is also critical. Um, there was someone that I was talking to on, on Twitter, and they were talking about how they got offered a job, but there was no paid vacation. And... That is, you know, and, and so my thought is, well, okay, fine, you can take vacation, but it's unpaid, but, you know, my first thought was, well, maybe you work less hours, right? That you, maybe, you know, if they're offering you X, you can say, okay, that's fine, but I'm going to offer you this for that, for that salary or, and, and those benefits, this is what I can provide. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are, these are things that, we, we don't have this culture right now, I think, in the museum community. Yeah, I mean, w uh, several years ago, I was part of the Getty leadership training for AAM, and in one of the breaks, one of our colleagues took a phone call because he was trying to hire, and the phone call took literally about three minutes, and he came back, and he was all happy, and he got the person, but he said, I just couldn't believe she just said yes, and he was, he was more than prepared to negotiate and nothing happened and I can't tell you how often that happens um, and and it's just it is money left on the table money or time or something and what's the worst that can happen I mean they're in the moment of asking you they're they're ready to be betrothed forever and ever the worst that's gonna happen is they say no right and then you're like oh okay um, I mean, to me, then I would turn around and what I counsel people to say is say, okay, in six months, can we talk again? Because I know I'm going to do a great job in six months. We need to talk. Right. It's also, it's something that's perpetuated by advertising jobs without a salary range. Oh. And, um, mm -hmm. and that is something, uh, you know, this is, is a, it's a big talking point now in, in, uh, in the community. And I think that once you take that step, then you sort of open the door to negotiation and say, 
well, I know that you're actually capable of paying X, and if you're only offering me Y, let's discuss that. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I don't know why we can't get AAM to move on that. Yeah. I mean, I've asked Laura a lot herself, and I didn't get anywhere, so. What, I, I have that as actually as a talking point. I'm curious, you know, what would, because I was shocked when they declined to require that. Mm -hmm. And what would them doing that do in further assisting in, in closing the gender pay gap and salary inequity? I don't think it would close the gender pay gap at all, to be honest, not to be too dark about this. But in the, in the um, pay session that we did at ASLH, which was interesting because we had one director, um, we broke up into sessions, so I did the pay gap piece, but we had another director doing nego salary negotiations, someone doing paid or not internships. Um, Oh, uh, race and how race impacts salary. Um, and there might have been something else. But um, one of the points we made, and it broke my heart to make this, but with the, these two wonderful directors who, I mean, one has raised a $14 million endowment at a relatively small organization that all of that money will go toward increasing salaries. And at the Ford, what they're looking at is starting with the lowest, the frontline staff first and raising salaries. But what we talked to them was, if you don't close the gap, mm -hmm. then all you're doing is moving people up in, in the categories where they are, and you just perpetuate the gap. So good for you for recognizing that your salaries aren't so great, but, but bad for perpetuating the gap. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword and it's a two-pronged fight, however you want to talk about it. Um, I think it would be what we encourage and what I encourage those two directors was to go back and do an equi equity audit of their salaries and sort of see where everyone is and then adjust for that first and then move people up. Because there may be people who started I have a colleague who started 19 years ago when she was about three and a half years old. I mean, she was a toddler. Um, and I know her salary was so ridiculously low at that point mm -hmm. that without a huge adjustment, she's never going to catch up. It doesn't matter what title they give her or how many raises mm -hmm. because she's just lagging way, way down. Would you advocate for an overall salary transparency in, in an institution? Should I say to my, my colleague, what do you make a year? Don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a colleague tell me what she makes. Well, we're absolutely forbidden to yeah. talk about salary, and she just outright told me. And um, I can't unhear what I've heard, yeah. and it makes me cranky every time I see her. Right. Yes. Um, so. Uh, I am an advocate not of total transparency because, I mean, there are, if you work for the state of whatever, yeah. um, my daughter works for the state of Missouri, I can look up her salary online because right. all of that is open. Mm -hmm. uh, if you work for the federal government, that's open. Mm -hmm. But um, many private nonprofits and boards just freak. At, I mean, they're mad enough that we can go on GuideStar and see what the top five 
employees are making. That freaks them out. I like the idea of a band, if you're talking within the institution. So if I know that I'm the junior curator of blah blah, blah mm -hmm. but I really want to move up, I can see what that if I move into band B, that my salary range is going to be X to X. Yeah. And I won't know where I land, but at least I know how big the jump is going to be. Right. And what that how meaning and I think that that provides boards and CFOs a little wiggle room which makes them a little happier so would you say by creating open salary ranges for jobs does this take the place of uh, unions uh, union contracts for non-union uh, locations um, maybe, but no, I mean, I may be completely misunderstanding how aggressive a particular union is at any museum and, and for at least it seems to me for the, for the newest, um, the new museum and the tenement museum and that place that I erased from my memory in California, um, those were all the frontline people. Um, I'm not sure that, um, I, I think the two things can coexist. That the, I see the union as an, uh, an entity that negotiates for you in a way that otherwise you wouldn't have any voice because you are the, the 55 people that work the desk at the, you know, Phoenix Museum of Art and you, you, you never have any interaction with anybody else right. except maybe HR to sign up for your benefits if you even get them. Um, so the union is kind of being your person. Right. Um, it, but you, it, you're sort of implying it's the last resort. Well, I think for many groups of staff, it is the last resort, mm -hmm. yeah. that they ha they cannot get themselves heard, and that that's, that's the way that they get themselves heard. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that means that, that you can't also have a banded salary scheme, right. mm -hmm. um, where let's say once you get out of those frontline positions that tend to be hourly, often part-time, no bennies, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, that then you know you're moving up into this world of of nice bands where this is where the assistant registrars sit and this is where the chief collections managers sit and you can kind of see how it how it and honestly you know there's a lot of well they won't do this there's a lot of them talk about this but if you if organizations were more transparent about where the money goes it's more understandable about why these decisions are made. Right. And, and I would hazard a guess that in many institutions, particularly large ones, you know, the, the hugest chunk of change that's going out the door is going for staff and going for health care benefits, which is phenomenally expensive. Right. Not to mention retirement and all of that. Right. Well, I'm going to shift our gears back a little bit more to specifically to leadership. Um, curators, we're seeing them starting to develop shows that challenge the norm of the institutional of our institutional standards. It requires staff 
to maybe step out of their previously defined roles, forces them in power, forces those into power that are uncharacteristically subordinate themselves. Um, it can be a challenge to accept those changes and uh, an opportunity of new input versus an excuse to abuse old standards, to kind of poison the opportunity for positive change. Are there opportunities for constructive development that we're passing by because we're discomforted by the changes to our accepted norms? And I'm going to just preface this by saying, I saw on Twitter yesterday the Guggenheim, and that's very relevant, and I think that might be a perfect example for this question. Um, yeah, I think we probably are. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do think it is, we are in an age of discord for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think that means that everybody's going to be discomforted a little bit. Um, I, I think alert, um, agile organizations recognize what's happening and and recognize what that is doing to staff. I mean, one of the quotes that came out of that Kaylin Feldman article yesterday was she was very open about the fact that she wanted outward-facing staff, which says to you, hmm, perhaps there weren't outward-facing staff before. Can, sorry, can you explain yeah. outward-facing staff? So staff that in one way or another deal with the wider community that are concerned about who who's who's using the collection mm -hmm. um, why are they using the collection why do they even care about us um, why should they care about us it's not enough anymore just to say we're big and we're important um, and I think that point was made by the speaker that followed me this morning that's notion that you would actually take your collection to, to the people to the people mm -hmm. is really important but people struggle with that i mean anytime you you rattle the cage people are going to be like oh my god mm -hmm. that's not what i signed up for you know i want to be the person that tells you how to think about this glass um not i i don't really care about your input <laughs> or or i am going to tell you about this glass because I've really thought about it, and, and I know that I'm taking a lot of points of view. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I find that the people um, that I, I've experienced in my short life that leave the biggest impact are the ones that come to the table with so much experience but want to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Like they want to engage in a conversation with me. There is no ego in any way. And doesn't that leave more of an impression than someone coming and just dictating to you? Oh, yeah. And I'm so surprised because I find that the most successful leaders are ones that are approachable, don't have that type of barrier. And I think the most successful leaders are always learners. They're never, they never stop. Mm -hmm. And they're like, sit down, tell me what you think, you know? <laughs> tell me how we can do this better. Mm -hmm. You know, successful leaders are the people who, when they're redoing the whole bottom floor of the museum, bring in the frontline staff and say, talk to us. What the heck happens there every day? Hmm. What would make your life better? Um, you know, how do, how do the elderly and the infirm get in here? Hmm. Well, you know, they're the people who know. And yet so many decisions at so many organizations are made by 
people higher up who just tell one story and everyone around the table goes, oh yeah, that must be true. Okay, fine. Mm. Um, I used to, <clears throat> I used to work, uh, before I got into working in museums, I was, I did some catering work and this was in New York and we would do a lot of high-end parties and this one party that everyone told me about, I was not there, but Bill Clinton, post-president, see, he, he attended the, the event. And the first thing that he did, and everybody talked about this, was he went to the back, into the kitchen, and said thanks to everybody. Mm-hmm. Before he even entered the party. And I'm not interested in a political discussion or whatever, but it had an impact such that everybody talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could have been all a charade. Doesn't matter. Everybody talked about it and talked about how much it meant to them. And you know, because we are the lowest rung on the total pole <laughs> in that in that context, we were the lowest rung, and um, and that's exactly what you're talking about. We're the boots on the ground, the people that have the direct interaction with the public, and um, being a leader requires listening, and that's the first group of people that needs to be heard. I have a friend, um, Frank Vagnana, who's the president and CEO of Old Salem Museum and Gardens, and. Frank's a bit of a renegade, he'd be the first to tell you that. <laughs> but in his first six months, he went and worked at every position. They're an outdoor historic site. So, I mean, they are a former Moravian community in the middle of downtown Winston-Salem. And he, he, he baked badly. <laughs> he did the desk, he did the carpenter shop. And yeah, you could say it was a bit of a stunt, but. Not really, because he got to know each one of his staff. He was a learner in each one of those places, and he had eyes on what was actually happening. So when change came, and believe me, change has come, people were, they knew that he knew how they live at work. And it was so much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's trust. Oh yeah. I even heard one story about how a Toyota, I think it was Toyota, that was developing a minivan for their American market. Well, what's a Japanese company know about, you know, developing a minivan for middle America? American but he <laughs> rode, yeah, he rode across the country with his staff in one of their vehicles and just experienced it. And, you know, it's like, well, on one hand, that is product development, but it's also leadership because... You know, why not have your staff member do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, these are interesting case studies for how to go about things, and you know, it, it also and it uh, it develops trusts uh, amongst everybody, and it also shows that you do have the hard skills too. You know, you're not just people managing; you are, you know, you've got your hands on, and you know, you're making decisions about. Your, your, your actual skills that are needed for that job. Mm-hmm. So, which also develops trust uh, and, um, and loyalty, so. I think that's a really good segue into another question we've got. Um, clearly there's been a lot of coverage this year in particular on valuing the undervalued worker. Uh, for example, Zachary Small did a five-part series on art handlers and hyperallergenic and art museum transparencies spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned in a 2017 AAM article that in a field so focused on identifying and embracing its community, it's concerning that some museums have one behavior for the public and another for staff. 
It appears we have been and continue to struggle with this dichotomy and it makes me wonder, are we asking too much of museums? Can we expect them to walk the walk and talk the talk? What is an effective approach when we see them failing to convince them to change? Well, I, I mean, I think this, this last six months has been, um, there are plenty of examples of what happens if you <laughs> fail to yeah. change. Yeah. Um, you could get the union that has scared the bejesus out of your trustees for so long. You could get the Me Too lawsuit because you refused to let HR deal with the particular problem. Um, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of reasons that I think even the most sort of hidebound board might bend. Yeah, might understand. I mean, I I do think, and it it's bothered me, and I know it's bothered the members of the Gem Steering Committee for a long time that you know there is this sort of front of the curtain behavior that museums um, go about. You know, we're we're embracing you, all communities, all races, and then they turn around and are complete jerks to their staff, or they allow really bad behavior and just sort of, I'm not looking so it's not happening kind of. Is there of a thing. sense of ticking boxes? Well, I think sometimes there is. I mean, that's just really horrible when, you know, we're diversifying our staff so we get the, you know, the one person of color and then we burden that person with every question about race goes to them and that's just horrible I mean it's unfair and it's wrong and 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 they're not a photo op they they are a human with with a career and wants and desires for that career too so I can't you know, I don't want to just blame everyone because I think a lot of people just aren't thinking when this kind of stuff happens, mm -hmm. but it's rough. There's a lot of, there's a lot of unpleasant behavior, mm -hmm. I think, in the workplace and certainly in the museum. Yeah, we are not immune to it at all, clearly. <laughs> no. But uh, to follow up a little, like you said, ticking a box, um, when, when you have people who um, employers or leaderships feel that they're arbitrarily working to fill a quota rather than employing those most qualified. How do you how do you respond to those perspectives and, and speak on maybe unconscious biases? Well, I mean, this is as I said this morning, and probably a bad answer to that question about hiring. But I do think AAM um, has done a really good job in sort of setting up steps for hiring without mm -hmm. bias, and um, I think if if one were to follow all of those, the blind application, well, the, the open salary scale to start with. So you're actually getting the people who want to do that job for that approximate money for your place. And then you go through all the applications first blind. You don't even know the names um, or any other information, just, just the words. Um, and then you continue to do everything you can to eliminate bias, and you put as many people as you can into the steps of the hiring process so that there's a lot of voices. Not that any one group is going to make the decision, mm -hmm. but that if, if you're hiring the educator, you're hiring one of the curators, that the guards get to meet them. Mm -hmm. Novel idea, but, but they are going to be dealing with them at some level. So. 
I think the more voices you have, the more equitable the decision has the possibility of being. Now, there's, you know, there's nothing to stop someone from saying, it's my way or the highway, and this is the person we're hiring. Yeah. Get over yourself. But, um, but at least, at least there are procedures that you can put in place that make the whole process a little more equitable. Mm -hmm. The one one of the issues, though, with with just that perspective. I, well, well, I say issues. I'm, I'm not taking issue with what you say. What I'm thinking of is if we want a broader base for applications, so that even the applications that you see, the words on the page, um, you need to reach out to a broader sector of people. You can't expect to diversify your workforce if you're just advertising to the same people the, the, the jobs that are available. So at some level, leadership, I, I, who, whoever, I don't know, what, how do we reach out to a broader? Well, here's, the get, here's an idea. Not everyone has to have a master's degree. Yeah, yeah. Let's just start there. Yeah. That's just dumb. Right. Um, it's an arbitrary know, way to weed out people. Yeah, and it weeds out a lot of people. And it even weeds out people who might not even know this is a field. Mm -hmm. um, they might have some humanities degree of some ilk or other and, and not even know that you could do this for work. Right. And why should they invest in, in a master's degree when they don't even know about the field or whether they like it? But I'm sorry, this is not heart surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, it's complex. Some days there's horrible pressure. Um, but not all jobs in any museum hierarchy are, are super difficult. And how about just opening the door for some people with um, a bachelor's degree? Right. Mm -hmm. And saying, this is the tryout position. If you like it, then maybe you'll go and get the master's. Well, and, and, and also that has to do with, A, it's precedent, um, but also, you know, you know we, we've, we, we understand that there's a precedent now, and it, we've accepted to some degree that being a curator is somehow a, a good skill that makes you eligible to be a museum director, um, and in the same way that having a master's in art history is, makes you qualified to be a registrar and I feel like there's a massive disconnect there so what you're there's not a direct line training mm -hmm. to become a registrar for example so all of your skills end up being relevant and valid mm -hmm. um, and so and also just given the wide variety of skills that we're asked to have whether it's understanding legal um, insurance uh, and, and then the objects and the collections themselves and all these conservation um, uh, strategies so it's it's a very diverse thing so it's completely arbitrary uh, to have to, to require somebody to have a master's degree yeah and it's classes and, <coughs> and not even in a field that is like you know having a master's degree in museum studies to me even seems more relevant as opposed right. to having an MA in art history right just because I work at an art historical institution right I don't use those skills right I mean if I can be honest I writing and research papers surely that helped but mm -hmm. And also, you know, so, I, I mean, I use the word object agnostic. You know, you could be working at an art museum today and then working at a histori historical society tomorrow. Right. And, you know, so, you know, all of the work you did for that master's thesis 
is irrelevant yeah. at this point. I mean, yeah. the, the skills behind it are important, writing, research, um, presenting, but otherwise, <laughs> so uh, I'm actually, I'm speaking tomorrow on the Emerging Museum Roundtable, and this is something I've earmarked because I've seen it brought up in other places as well, and I just think it's beyond you know, important. Imagine if the who knows where um, budget of like several million dollars small town general museum had two opening positions for people with BAs and they worked in the curatorial department which probably has a curator and a registrar. They could find out whether this is for them or not. And then they will either stay and get their master's degree. Maybe they'll go to law school. You know, who knows what they'll do. But, but, it seems to me at that level, you're you're learning both about the field and about yourself, and and about the museum itself. Mm -hmm. And those are the doors that need to open. And once they're open, then you can decide. Oh, I want to make a commitment to this. Mm -hmm. This sounds really cool. Hearing you say that it just makes me think that the, like the devil's advocate would be, well, that's an internship opportunity for you. So you know, you do that an internship, and then you would know whether or not you want to pursue your master's. Blah blah. blah. But that's not the that's not the uh, structure in corporate world. I mean, they have all of those you know uh, what do they call them um, entry level positions that really allow you to do exactly like you've said. And maybe you go, and maybe your employer invests in you and pays for your education, which is a dream. Or maybe you don't, and you go somewhere else. But it exists on another model, and it doesn't exist here. Mm -hmm. And to your point, it, there's no reason it shouldn't. Yeah. No, I mean, the attitudes, and and worse than that, that it's not viewed that that those positions are viewed as internship positions. They're also viewed as oh, and by the way, come to that internship with your masters or your masters underway, which is even worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, in in a corporate setting your employer might pay for the, the master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, you know, it's, it, it, the, the training is not, it, it's, I, I would almost say, like, um, the training could be, if, if people were open to the idea, having an MBA, for example, might actually be more beneficial, or having a data science. Now, I mean, if all we do is spend our lives on a database, maybe that's actually more relevant. I, um, one of my old neighbors, I thought this this was fascinating. I I, um, I saw him, you know, coming off the subway. I hadn't really, I didn't, I knew his name, but I didn't know him very well. I'll say, so uh, how was your day at work? You know, what do you do? I don't even know what you do. And he's like, well, I actually work for the Department of Homeland Security. And I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so what do you do? He's like, well, I don't really talk about it much because it's a pretty terrible thing. I plan for the worst case scenario. Um, and so all of the darkest things that he could imagine happening, I, I guess it was relevant to New York City at the time, he prepares for him. He's like, well, how do you get into that? He was like, I was recruited. I was studying finance. And somehow the government realized that that skill set is applicable to the job of Homeland Security and, and all this stuff. And, and it's like, well, if we take that perspective, maybe we should be looking at people without museum studies degrees to populate our collections uh, management staff. So, um, but, you know, it takes an openness to that. And, yeah. um, and you, know, I, you know, I worked at an institution that had lots of interns, and we hired many of them. 
and a lot of those people came in thinking that they wanted to be a curator and they weren't necessarily introduced or uh, to working in collections and they didn't know that that was a viable thing or they didn't know much about it and so once they got a taste it was like well we don't have a curatorial internship available at the moment but we have collections management mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they get a taste and then several of them I think change their path because maybe it's not applicable to everybody to, to become a curator they want to yeah. work in the arts and yeah. mm -hmm. they think that's the, the only job available so right. well, I, I just feel like there's there's an opportunity across the field for some entry level get the BA try it out see what you like mm -hmm and then make that investment. Because right. mm -hmm. some of these students, some of our students, and, and they're in the cheap version because they're in the Johns Hopkins online program. They're not in a face-to-face -face program, which is the, they emerge with the equivalent of a mortgage. Right. And then they have to go find a job. And then they're like, oh, this is terrible. Right. I can't find a job or they're not paying enough and I have these loans that are going to be with me till after death. If I'm run over by a car, the loans are still going to be right. there. It's just terrible. But So I think if you're going to make that kind of investment, then you really need to know that this matters to you. Right. That's a super important point. Mm -hmm. I think from what I'm hearing about everything we've talked about and from your speech earlier this morning that none of this is impossible for us to achieve as a field it's a lot of it's just choice choice to do it choice to invest in it um choice to make a change and see how it, you know see how it goes i'm curious uh what can we do maybe on a more micro level in our everyday professional actions to continue to open the door to diversity to continue to open it to change well i think you can exercise whatever power you have within your institution to be helpful, supportive, um, positive about bringing, um, bringing a diverse workforce into your organization. You can be, once those people are there, you can be supportive of them in the workplace. You know, take them to lunch once a month and say, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. How's your world? Um, or take a group of them out for drinks and just let them spill their cups. Because <laughs> sometimes you just need to do that with people who also understand and who have already navigated that path and can say, you know what, that's really not going to work. Or mm -hmm. good for you and I can support you by talking to blah blah Because sometimes the way change happens is to triangulate, you know, I go to you and you make change because you know John and you know that you can fix that for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that whole, you know, just being kind to one another and mm -hmm. trying to empathize a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a, not a fan of workplace, the workplace being your family. That kind of makes me feel sick. But. Um, well, I don't know. People have a lot of issues about families anyway. Elaborate on that. <laughs> I just, I don't want to really work in a place where everybody's birthday is constantly celebrated and, oh God, it's just hopeless. And, yeah. and you know, are you going to celebrate the holidays, but you don't want to offend? Oh, just nightmare. But if you can transfer all of that goodness mm -hmm. to just 
talking to someone and being a little kind mm -hmm. um, instead of being snarky or gossipy or not helpful um, or not standing up for someone who's getting their head patted when they have a life experience. They may be 26 years old, but they have had experiences that I will never have, and we need to be respectful of that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can put all those little pieces together, then maybe your little box of your greater museum will be the happy place. Mm -hmm. And I do know people who, who have led the happy team in a larger organization, and everyone's been like, whoa, huh that department they're so happy <laughs> but it's a good place to work mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing to be leading the happy team isn't yeah. that the goal yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah it's funny whenever i um at my last job i was i was given someone to be responsible for which was not what i signed up for when i took the job so i was very um taken aback but i took i took the responsibility seriously it's someone's career um and uh you know reached out for resources, my employer didn't any. So I, I did much of it myself. And one of the things I found is that people may stay for less pay, they may stay for other things, but they will leave under poor leadership. Mm -hmm. So it was always incredibly important to me to like, okay, no matter what I do, I can't screw, up, screw it up for them because I don't want to be the reason they leave. I want to be the reason they stay. And I know at some point you're gonna outgrow this job. Everyone's gonna we need to move on at some point, but it won't be because we didn't, under my leadership, provide them the opportunity to grow. Right. And that's a, that's a really interesting point, just being nice, being kind, making an environment that people want to be in. You could keep someone for years. Talk I about have, return on investment. I have a colleague, he wrote, I don't know if you've ever seen the, Bront, the way the Bronte sisters write, they write about this big, <laughs> <laughs> and he's a big rangy guy, but he has little itty bitty writing. And, but anytime you do anything collegial with him, you will find scrunched up, like on your desk chair, a, a little note from Steve McKibben in his tiny little writing that says, you know, how much he appreciated it. Mm -hmm. And how can you not like that, you know? Oh, thank you. Because mm -hmm. um, everybody's, well, many people just say thank you, but these are very personal, very targeted. They're not email. Mm -hmm. And it means so much more now in this context when everything is digital, when someone takes the time to write it by hand. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not expected, and so it is immense, that gesture. So, yep. well, I think that's probably a great place to, to end things. Yeah, okay. um, thank you so much, Joan, for thank you. presenting and also for uh, sitting down with us for, to record the podcast. Thanks so much. And everybody, uh, find uh, Joan's blog, at search for Leadership Matters, and um, sure, when the, the, third, or the second edition of Leadership Matters book is now out. Is that it's correct? It's out. It's and on like Amazon. Great. So look for, look for her book with Ann Ackerson, uh, Leadership Matters. And uh, with that, we'll close things out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.